Content warning. This episode is going to contain some pretty graphic descriptions of ancient warfare, so if that's not your scene, that's okay. Go ahead and skip around in the episode, or skip this episode entirely, and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks. Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 9, Timoleon and Agathocles. Around the year 350 BC, on a day that is sadly lost to history, the crowd around the Temple of Eshmoon was big. Really big. To an onlooker with the view from the Bursa, the great hill of Carthage, the sprawl of people must have seemed unending. If they were to descend the wide streets of the gilded city district and approach the crowd, they too would have felt the surge of mixed emotions rippling throughout the citizens, free people, and slaves of Carthage, whose eyes were fixed on the spectacle at the temple's entrance. The restless murmurs, the shouts of encouragement, the wails of despair would have rang in their ears. They would have smelled the blood in the air, and known that only bloodshed could draw so much attention from the masses. In the distance, at the center of the crowd, overshadowed by the glimmering carved temple architecture, was a cross, bearing a man in a blood-soaked toga. Surrounding him were similarly well-dressed younger men, some just boys, all tied together and either slumped on the ground dead, or quavering at the knowledge that they would soon meet the same fate. The man on the cross had been up there for hours now. The suffocation was setting in. By now, he was probably too delirious from pain to process the full extent of his punishment. Hanno the Great, the man doomed to die on this cross in front of all his countrymen, had committed the ultimate sin in this new age of Carthage. He had dared to overthrow the Republic. We gave an overview of Hanno the Great's machinations and eventual downfall at the end of the previous episode because, well, chronologically he lived and operated during the 3rd and 5th Sicilian Wars. But the reason that we open with him today has more to do with the interlude in Carthaginian history that he represents. Hanno and his contemporary Carthaginian citizens were members of the generation that grew up in the shadow of Himilcar Mago's disastrous retreat from Syracuse. Their lives weren't defined by the magnate victories and expansion overseas, but rather by Libyan insurrections in North Africa and food shortages caused by Sardinian revolts, not to mention the looming menace of plague. The attention of the Adrim, Suffites, and Magistrates, and Mehoshbim of Hanno's day was consequently focused on revitalizing the Carthaginian Republic, as opposed to expanding it. Hanno the Great spent his early career as a general, a Rob Mahanet, campaigning in the provinces, gradually crushing resistance and expanding imperial control wherever he went. But he was not the only statesman who set themselves on the same path. Hanno had another rival, another Rab Mahanet, named Eshmuniaton. This was all happening in the 370s and 360s BC, around the time of the 5th Sicilian War, that pitiful blockade of Lilibium that Dionysius I orchestrated. Both Hanno and Eshmuniaton were extraordinary leaders, both militarily and politically, 
And so naturally, when the instability lessened after years of effort on their part, they each became respected members of the Adurim, where a political faction sprang up around them. But the Adurim was not big enough for the two of them. As the 360s waned, Hanno arranged a clever means of assassinating his foe. He would let the institutions of the Republic do it for him. All it took were some rousing speeches and fabricated documents claiming Eshmuniaton had conspired with Dionysius in the past to have him swiftly executed and his party purged from government. In the following years, Hanno, now styled Hanno the Great, rose to the level of power that we found him at last time, when he tried to overthrow the Adurim and establish a political dynasty. As you'll recall, his first attempt, which involved poisoning his colleagues at his own daughter's wedding, was thwarted by one of his slaves. His more violent bid for power, a slave rebellion 20,000 slaves strong, according to the Greek sources, did indeed end violently, just not in the way Hanno intended. And that brings us to the front of the Temple of Eshmun, where he suffers on a cross, his eyes mutilated, his limbs crushed, and every last man in his family dead at his feet. Hanno's grisly execution in the mid-4th century BC signals an end to this interim between Sicilian wars where domestic strife forged Carthage into an imperial republic. The coming decades will temper that Carthaginian steel. We will watch it face new threats in the Sicilian arena, and in doing so, discover its potential to dominate a greater geopolitical sphere. These two final Sicilian wars present us with two new Syracusan adversaries, Timoleon and Agathocles. But before we dive into a whole other set of Sicilian wars, hold on a minute. I mean, hasn't Carthage just been put through decades of hell because of all these wars in Sicily? Why would they return their gaze to somewhere that had caused them so much trouble in the past? Well, it wasn't really a conscious decision on anyone's part. In the second half of the 4th century, so the 300s, Carthage ended up getting sucked into more conflict by the tornado of Syracusan politics, and the center of this storm was none other than the new tyrant of Syracuse, Dionysius II. Now, I get it, you know, you may or may not be sick of that name by now, I mean, we talked about Dionysius for literally three episodes, but... Don't go thinking that the father was identical to the son. The Dionysius we got to know in the past couple episodes was a brash demagogue, cutthroat, cruel, took audacious risks, and persevering to the point of folly. He had won his own throne by climbing the ladder of chaos. His son, on the other hand, though already 25 when he rose to power, and thus a few years older than his father had been when he started his political career, was a party animal, with no experience in any sort of leadership role. It's like that classic trope of the austere CEO that hands the company off to his sheltered son, who would rather drink with his frat buddies than sit in an office. Where Dionysius I had learned the ropes of government on his own, Dionysius II had a plethora of advisors who, unless they, you know, wanted to see Syracuse run into the ground by a party animal, had to guide him at every step. The first of these mentors was his uncle, a guy named Dion. 
Dion was of a more mild temperament than his late brother, and he sought out the greatest minds of the Greek world to tutor Dionysius II on as many subjects and ideas as possible. And this led to the arrival of Dionysius II's next mentor, none other than Plato himself. Plato, as some of you classics or philosophy enthusiasts out there may know, had developed his own political system as a response to what he saw as the corrupt democracy of Athens. This system, known as the Platonic Republic, was led by a philosopher king, an autocrat whose sole purpose was to maintain order and justice, and did so by honing their mind. Yet, yeah, don't let the name Republic fool you. This is not a republic as we define it today. In fact, if you read Plato's titular work on the subject, it can come off as very ableist and elitist at times. The best governance, Plato thought, came from pure reason, logic, and philosophy. Now this subject of political philosophers and their influence on world leaders is actually really fascinating, and you know, I could get into a whole tangent about Plato and Dionysius II, Aristotle and Alexander, Seneca and Nero. I mean, just think about the historical ramifications of these ideas being put in the spotlight, but that would be a little much for what should only be some background about Syracuse. Instead, just know that Dionysius II spent the early days of his reign having the ideas of Platonic justice and the Council of Dion drilled into his head daily. Although Dionysius II was a fair student, he also had some of his father's more base nature in him. Behind his uncle's back, he continued to throw parties, get ridiculously drunk with his friends, and sleep around with all the women of his court. This led to a falling out between the two which ended in Dion's exile to Corinth in 366 BC. Dion spent years in Greece, until 357 he finally raised an army 1,000 strong and returned home to conquer Syracuse from his incompetent nephew. The reign of Dionysius II without the hand of Dion on his shoulder had been unstable, to say the least. Tired of lavish spending, even if some of it did go to the artists of the city, the people of Syracuse eventually welcomed Dion as a liberator, and so the tides were turned and Dionysius II was now forced to go into exile for 11 years. When opportunity struck, Dionysius II returned from exile to seize control of his home city. That opportunity came in the form of turmoil in Syracuse, because Dion had actually died several years prior, you know, while well, Dionysius II was still in exile, and vying factions had sprung up in the meantime. Dionysius II used the instability to legitimize his reclamation of the city, but the reactionary statesmen weren't going to let him waltz in that easily. They sent word to Corinth, requesting intervention, and so after only a year of being back as tyrant, Dionysius II had another contender to deal with. This was a Corinthian leader named Timoleon. Okay, so let's take a second here to talk about Timoleon, as he's a pretty interesting actor in the Sicilian drama. He was born into a powerful family in Corinth, a family that was part of the oligarchy that ran the city-state. Though he was set up from birth to live a comfortable life of wealth, power, and luxury, Tragedy struck Timoleon when he was forced to choose between his family 
and his principles as a Corinthian. His brother had overthrown the oligarchy recently, making himself tyrant of Corinth. And so an outraged Timoleon joined a group of statesmen that plotted against and eventually assassinated this would-be autocrat. For this noble prioritization of the state over his own kin, Timoleon was regarded as a hero in Corinth and became a respected voice of the re-established oligarchical government. But this only came after years of scorn from his family and self-disgust. Twenty years, in fact. This guy had lived a complicated life by the time Corinth got involved with Syracuse in the 340s. And if you're wondering why Corinth suddenly becomes so relevant in our story, I mean, where did it come from? You know, that's a good question. Corinth, which, by the way, was located in central Greece, right on a stretch of land that connects the Peloponnesus to the north, was also the mother city of Syracuse, just like Tyre was the mother city of Carthage. Back in episode 3, when the Greek migration to the western Mediterranean was still in full swing, the Corinthians were just one of many Greek city-states that sent settlers to Sicily, and their settlement just so happened to become the most powerful one on the Greek half of the island. This, incidentally, is why Syracuse had sided with the Peloponnesian League in the Peloponnesian War, because Corinth was a member of said league. So it made perfect sense that Syracusans yearning to overthrow their oppressive despot would seek aid from Corinth in 345 BC. And who better to answer the call than the Corinthian paragon of virtue and justice, Timoleon. Meanwhile, back in Syracuse, things were not going so well for Dionysius II. In all the chaos that had come after Dion's death, well, Dionysius was still in the middle of his stint in exile, remember, many of the smaller Sicilian Greek city-states that were once allied to or under the domination of Syracuse, same thing really, had gone their separate ways once more. Tyrants had emerged in some of these places, and Sicilian power was slowly decentralizing out of Syracuse in hands. The most powerful of these new Greek tyrants was Hecatos of Leontini. Leontini was a pretty influential Greek settlement in between Syracuse and Catana that had always been in the background of our story. And if you read Diodorus Siculus, you'll hear a lot more about them from him than you will from me. This up-and-coming Hecatos had some pretty lofty ambitions. He hadn't just taken power to rule over Leontini alone. So like many other people in this story, Hecatos took advantage of the disorder in Syracuse. Gathering an army of Leontines, he attacked his southern neighbor and succeeded in driving Dionysus II out of the city proper. Refusing to go into exile again so complacently, Dionysius II retreated to that huge fortress that his father had built before the Third Sicilian War, which was on an island very close to the Syracusan harbor. The triumph of Hecatas, who now asserted control over the affairs of Syracuse, finally brings us back to Carthage. When the Adherim discovered that Syracuse had been overthrown by rebellious Greeks from Leontini, that they were no longer the bulwark of Greek Sicily, they must have been ecstatic, wasting no time to exploit the golden ticket that Hecatas had just handed them, 
the Carthaginians rushed to secure alliances with Leontini and a handful of other newly independent Greek cities with these new tyrants. To really seal the deal and, you know, make sure that Hiketos didn't get immediately overthrown, they sent 50,000 infantry, hundreds of chariots, dozens of siege engines, and a stockpile of materiel over to Syracuse by ship. That's kind of a weird sentence to write after all this. The Carthaginian army came in through the northwest and smashed any settlement that dared oppose the new order. This was the situation that Timoleon was heading into come 344 BC after a year of preparations back in Corinth. Before he even set foot on Sicilian soil, Carthage had sent messengers to warn him that there would be dire consequences if he interfered in Syracuse or so much as approached the city with his army in tow. By the time Timoleon made it to Regium and prepared to cross over the Strait of Messina into Sicily, Carthage was ready to stop him with force. They sent a whole squadron of ships to blockade Timoleon in the Regian harbor. Timoleon managed to give the Punic sailors the slip, though, as they negotiated with Corinthian sympathizers in the state council of Regium. He sped down the eastern coast of Sicily, his army snowballing in size, until he pounced at Hiketas' unprepared force. Routing the Leontines in two decisive battles, Timoleon routed them back to Syracuse, where a weird standoff occurred. Dionysius II was just chilling in his fort. Hiketas was in the outer suburbs of Syracuse. The Carthaginian fleet was blockading the harbor of Syracuse. And all the while, Timoleon, who had got there before the previous two, occupied the inner city. The stalemate collapsed when Timoleon drove out Hiketas, causing Carthage to get spooked and retreat. And as for Dionysius, well, he was kind of running out of supplies and willpower at this point. It was already a foregone conclusion for him. Timoleon captured him without a fuss and destroyed his father's great fortress, which, although it would have been welcomed by the citizens during the era of Dionysius' military reforms, was now seen as the symbol of that family's despotic rule over Syracuse. And with that, Timoleon set out to construct a coherent democracy for the city, with his dictatorial status secure. The new constitution included a vast citizen council and an elected executive position, along with the new legal code. Dionysius II was exiled to Corinth, where he would die a broken man a year later. A similar fate met Hecatos, though he would continue fighting for a little while longer until he surrendered to Timoleon and was subsequently executed. So far, Timoleon was, well, there's no other way to say it, kicking ass. But he is finally about to hit a stumbling block. The mercenaries in his army, of which there were quite a few, needed to be paid, and yet he didn't have anything to pay them with. So Timoleon was forced to take the action that makes this the run-up to the Sixth Sicilian War, because it eliminated any chance for Carthage to opt out of fighting. He went on the offensive in western Sicily, raided some Carthaginian subjects, and converted others to his side. Carthage, realizing that if they wanted to win the inevitable war that was coming, 
They couldn't rely on their tributaries, who might jump ship at the first chance of independence, sent a full army to handle the crisis. The makeup of this army shows how much their military has evolved from the days of mass Libyan levies. Although there was that typical mercenary contingent, they branched out a bit and hired from the Iberians and even Celtic peoples living in Western Europe. The bulk of the army, though, was composed of elite citizen units known as the Sacred Band. The Carthaginian war machine was kickstarted back into action. Diodor Siculus, I mean, he has whole paragraphs describing all the chariots, the cavalry, the armor and weapons, and the thousands of transports that coordinated to get all this stuff over to Sicily on a scale that would baffle an individual observer. It looked like Timoleon had bitten off more than he could chew. Regardless, the stoic Corinthian didn't just await his overwhelming enemy in the confines of Syracuse, he actively sought them out. The farther he got into enemy territory, the more unreal it seemed to his men that Timoleon was even attempting this. The Greek force was only several thousand men strong, with most of them being mercenaries who only wanted to get their silver and get out alive. I mean, think about what it would feel like to complete a daily march in an ordered column, knowing that you were just going to take on an army that could easily, easily envelop you. It's hard for us to get into that mindset, because we're so far removed from concepts like war and visceral destruction in the modern era, but give it a couple minutes to think about what that would be like, and it starts to freak you out a bit. The things ancient peoples had to live with on a day-to-day -day basis, the possibilities that were just hanging over their heads, are terrifying. And these Greek mercenaries knew it too, because one of their commanders actually tried to stage a mutiny mid-march, although Timoleon's passionate rhetoric won them back in the end. He wasn't stupid. He knew what he was doing seemed foolish, but Timoleon had a plan. Let's switch over to the Punic perspective for a bit, shall we? The Republic of Carthage, about a generation removed from the destruction of the previous Sicilian wars, was probably less worried about this campaign than the most seasoned magnates would have been. After all, they had the sacred band on the job, they had thousands of mercenaries and hundreds of triremes. They would trounce Timoleon's little army and take Syracuse, reclaiming the entire island of Sicily as a Carthaginian province. This was going to be child's play, right? Right? Not exactly. Enter that plan Timoleon was cooking up. By now, he had marched into northwestern Sicily, not far from the city of Segesta, if you're looking at a map, and was camped out in the foothills overlooking a river. This river, called the Crimesis, will be the center of the battle we're about to cover. Timoleon is here for a reason. He knows that Carthage will stop by here and he wants to catch them off guard when they do. One morning, he sees his opportunity. The Carthaginians have arrived, they're in the process of crossing the river, and the units of Sacred Band are going first, making them completely vulnerable to attack. What's more, the river was surrounded in a morning mist that would make it impossible for Carthage to spot Timoleon before it was too late. Assembling his cavalry, Timoleon went screaming down the hill and intercepted the disorganized citizen army of Carthage mid-crossing. The sacred band didn't get their act together in time, and as if they weren't already at enough of a disadvantage, the mist turned to rain 
and then heavy rain. The heavy armor of the sacred band weighed them down in the now overflowing river. Their glimmering white shields were caked with slippery mud. It was a slaughter. The retreating citizen soldiers only caused more panic as they fled across the river, and thus, quite a few units that hadn't even faced the brunt of the Sicilian charge ended up drowning in the chaos. Without the sacred band, there was no reason for Carthage to continue this battle. They fled to the western coast and the army disbanded. And just like that, the battle of the river Crimesis was a Greek victory, or more specifically, a Syracusan victory. Like the first battle of Himera and the siege of Motia, the aftermath of the Crimesis sent alarm bells ringing back in Carthage. Carthage had never lost that many of its own people in a single battle before. Now they just had a little taste of the grief that the Libyans must have felt after Himilcar's defeat at Syracuse decades earlier. So disturbed was the Council of 104 that they sent for a son of Hanno the Great, who had managed to escape the Adarim's purge from the beginning of the episode, and gave him the task of overseeing any future campaigns in Sicily. Most notably, they reformed their recruitment policy, so it would take less of a toll on the elite citizen body of Carthage. I mean, they couldn't just afford to keep losing thousands of potential statesmen and bureaucrats, right? It's pretty interesting to watch these changes unfold over time, too, because at first you see Carthage rely almost solely on mercenaries in the early Sicilian wars, then on a levy from North Africa and Libya, and then after Himilcar causes a series of rebellions by just ditching an entire generation's worth of Libyans and leaving them for dead, Carthage course corrects in that opposite direction and over-relies on its own upper classes to fight their wars. Now they settled on a healthy medium, and as we'll see in a future episode, they'll stick with this balanced military policy for quite a while. In the immediate fallout of the battle, though, there was not much Carthage could do besides sue for peace. And so they cut their losses, and signed a treaty that chipped away somewhat at their Sicilian holdings. They now pretty much controlled everything west of Akragas, which if all this Sicilian geography is starting to stick with you like it's starting to for me, you'll notice it gives them about half the island rather than the three-fourths they had had before Timoleon stuck his nose in their affairs. The year was 340 BC, and the Sixth Sicilian War was over. And hey, we're almost there folks, one more to go. So, although Carthage technically just lost the Sixth Sicilian War, historian Richard Miles reminds us that it, quote, looked as though the strategic long game first initiated by the Magonids in Sicily had paid off, end quote. Let's examine why he can still confidently say that. In the last years of the 300s, Carthage was the largest power on the entire island because after Timoleon died, which happened a couple years after the Battle of Crimesis, by the way, Greek Sicily remained divided. Carthage worked to keep it divided. Instead of launching another sacred band at Syracuse, they just hired various mercenary companies from all over their empire and beyond to fight in the petty wars between Sicilian Greek tyrants and the new democracy of Syracuse that Timoleon had just set up. The animosity this fueled among these cities and settlements gave Carthage the economic and political edge over all of them. 
Now this sort of divide and conquer diplomatic puppet master approach may seem cowardly and conniving to us because we live in the shadow of Western and therefore Greco-Roman culture. But in Punic culture, this was probably a perfectly reasonable, honorable way of dealing with one's enemies. And let's face it, the Carthaginian strategy in place here was pretty damn effective for a solid 30 years or so. During this interval of Sicilian peace, or at least indirect hostility, Punic attention was diverted elsewhere. And some of my listeners with an avid interest in classical history can probably already guess why. In 336, a young prince in the region of northern Greece known as Macedonia, or Macedonia, had the role of king unexpectedly thrust upon him after his father's public assassination. He would go on to rule much more than just Macedonia. In fact, by the end of the 320s BC, he would control an empire that stretched from Greece to India. This young man was, of course, Alexander the Great, and believe it or not, his destiny very nearly intertwined with Carthage's. This interesting little tangent from our main story starts in 332, when Alexander and his dream team of generals conquered their way to the land of Canaan. One of these cities that resisted their demands was, of course, Tyre, the mother city of Carthage that we haven't really mentioned in a while. Though Carthage was by now, of course, completely independent from Tyre, Tyre at this time being part of a Persian satrapy, the old Punic gods still bound the two cities together. So it was that a collection of Carthaginian priests who were visiting that famous temple of Melkart from all the way back in episode 1 found themselves trapped in Tyre during Alexander's siege. And this was a brutal siege. Remember how during the siege of Motia, which was on an island off the Sicilian coast, Dionysius had built something called a mole, which is basically just a man-made land bridge to get across? Well, if you'll recall, Tyre was an island city too, and Alexander was about to make the siege works at Motia look like a sandcastle. He built a mole so massive to capture Tyre that if you go visit the city today, and you totally should, it's in modern-day Lebanon, and it's called Sor, right after its original Canaanite name, you might notice that it is no longer surrounded by water. That's right, Alexander's Siege of Tyre transformed it from an island into a peninsula. You can't make that stuff up. The Carthaginian priests managed to survive the ordeal, and their reports of Alexander's military prowess were the first to pique Carthage's interest in this young Macedonian king. They sent spies to infiltrate his ranks and keep an eye on his activities, but Alexander wasn't really hiding his intentions from anyone. He wanted to conquer everything that was in his reach, and someday, that would include Carthage. In the coming months after his conquest of Canaan, Alexander made his way into Egypt, who welcomed him pretty warmly compared to other regions he visited, and it was here that he sent a message to the Adrim, basically warning them that they were on his hit list. That must have freaked the Suffetes and Magistrates out in Carthage a bit, huh? Now, hopefully, we all know that Alexander never actually stepped foot in Carthaginian territory. After Egypt, he moved east to Mesopotamia, 
Persia, and even northwestern India and modern-day Pakistan before he was forced to march home. In 322 BC, Alexander died of an alcohol-induced fever in Babylon after a long session of partying. His empire was divided up amongst ambitious generals and desperately fought over for decades to come. A lot of historians do actually think, however, that if Alexander had lived, he might actually have gone west, which would have involved an invasion of Carthage. And if he had done so, who knows, he probably would have won. Interesting to think about, isn't it? While the affairs of the east kept Carthage distracted from the Sicilian thorn in their side for a time, they would yet again feel the sharp pain of another Sicilian tyrant before the 300s were over. Once Timoleon had died, Syracusan authority was vested in the constitution he had crafted upon his arrival. While the Greeks would technically call this democracy, the government looked and functioned very similarly to the democracy that Dionysius overthrew back in the day, with all those bickering political parties and citizen assemblies. Basically, it was a very large oligarchy, but an oligarchy nonetheless. This was the status quo that our next character will disrupt. Let's talk about Agathocles. So let me put a quick disclaimer here. What I'm about to relay to you is a historical account of the life of Agathocles condensed from some really fanciful ancient sources. Diodorus Siculus has much more, shall we say, lively biography of this man than I do. So if you're interested in how ancient historians used to operate and how far the discipline has really come in all the millennia, go check that out. And I return to the suggestion of reading Diodorus a lot in this series. I know, but if there's one passage you should read from him, it's probably this one. It's full of foreshadowing and oracles, and it's quite well written, too. So, ready for my drier but more factual account? Okay, here we go. Agathocles was born in Thermae Himera, and unlike anyone I've introduced to you in this whole story, his early prospects weren't great. His father was a former citizen of Regium who was exiled from and moved to Sicily to plant new roots. Now, being a citizen in ancient Greece usually meant you were of some means. You were better off than some common merchant, at least. But straying from Regium, having relinquished him of any property he may have owned there, Agathocles' father had to take up a trade. He chose pottery and settled in Thermae Himera, which you'll recall was the settlement that Carthage had founded to house those Greek and Punic people displaced by Hannibal Mago's sacking of Himera. This is where Agathocles was born. So already we know that, like Timoleon, Agathocles is a leader of Syracuse who isn't actually from Syracuse at all. How, then, did Agathocles find himself as its tyrant? Well, in his early childhood, probably due to the uncertainty caused by Greek infighting, Agathocles' family immigrated to Syracuse. This was a little after Timoleon imposed his new constitution, and one of his many popular programs was to offer free citizenship to anybody that came to Syracuse looking for a new life. Agathocles was raised in Syracuse for the remainder of his youth, and brought up to be a potter who would one day help run his father's workshop. But he had larger ambitions than just being an artisan in some Syracusan suburb. 
Agathocles immersed himself in local politics and was ambitious and lucky enough to find a one-way ticket straight to the top of Syracusan democracy. A sugar daddy. This new lover, a wealthy citizen named Damas, gifted him a villa, a small fortune, and most importantly, a command position in the army. But Agathocles wasn't just some pretty trophy boy. He earned his newfound rank with hard work in the camp and valor on the battlefield. The geopolitical climate in Greek Sicily at the time was such that there were plenty of disputes to be settled through warfare, after all. This, of course, sometimes put him on the same side as Carthage, whose policy at this time, remember, was to fund as many factions as possible to prevent Greek unity on the island. Meanwhile, his lover Damas died, and so Agathocles cunningly married his widow so that he could claim his former lover's estate all for himself. That must have been a pretty awkward wedding ceremony. Now, the reason I mention all of this backstory about Agathocles isn't just because it's compelling, which it totally is, don't get me wrong. No, the main reason I bring it up is because it gives us some much-needed insight into the lives of those who weren't fabulously wealthy or powerful in this period. We can surmise that many other common people flocked from city-state to city-state to escape the discord and instability caused by all these Sicilian wars. Quite a few probably took advantage of Timoleon's reforms and offers of citizenship. The suburbs of Syracuse were likely packed to the brim with prospective citizens, working tirelessly to earn their bread in an unfamiliar city. And of course, this means that Agathocles wasn't the only one to join the military or even a mercenary band to go searching for riches and glory. So now we move on to a less detailed summary of Agathocles' rise to power, because we kind of have a whole Carthaginian perspective to talk about, and I don't want to make this all about some Greek dude. Basically, after a handful of failed coup attempts, Agathocles gathered an army to overthrow the government of Syracuse. These men all backed him because of his opposition to the oligarchy, to the wealthy, to the labyrinth of factions and parties that had emerged after Timoleon's death. When he entered the city, he massacred the oligarchs publicly and with such ferocity that the violence spilled out into the streets. Hundreds of noble families were slaughtered by Agathocles and his enraged soldiers. Having literally exterminated his old political rivals and then some, Agathocles proclaimed himself a champion of Syracusan democracy and promised to the now useless assembly of citizens to uphold democratic ideals throughout his reign. In everything but name, though, he was another tyrant. But like Dionysius, he was actually in pretty good standing with the common people for most of his time in power. It was now 317 BC, and Agathocles was just getting started. Within a couple years of his ascension, Agathocles had revitalized the Syracusan spirit. The citizens and lower classes rejoiced at his land grants and economic reforms, while his soldiers excitedly conquered territory after territory for him. Under Agathocles, Syracuse had regained its old identity as a regional power with imperial ambitions rather than just a mere city-state. And the first of those imperial ambitions was to consolidate the eastern half of the island and then start pushing into southern Italy. To accomplish both of these goals, Agathocles had to invade Messina, which in 415 he did. 
But there was another more personal reason that Agathocles dispatched an army to Messina. The remainder of the Syracusan oligarchs who had survived his bloody purge were currently seeking asylum there, and getting rid of them once and for all would tie up yet another loose end for him. The siege persisted for several months, and during that time, the Syracusan exiles managed to get a message out of the no-man's land and into Carthaginian hands. It was a request for intervention against Agathocles, which for Carthage was kind of a tough call. Remember how we said that back in Agathocles' soldiering days, he had likely accepted some Carthaginian funds here and there? Well, that relationship actually persisted into his autocratic rule over Syracuse. For those first couple of years, Carthage, thinking they finally had a Syracusan tyrant in their pocket, looked the other way as he retook settlement after settlement in eastern Sicily. Messina, though, was apparently a step too far. I mean, what would happen if Agathocles took it? Would he just move into southern Italy and keep rolling over the delicate balance among Greek city-states? That certainly wasn't in Carthage's economic or political interests, so they accepted the call to action from Messina. Now, at first, Carthage tried to resolve the conflict diplomatically. They urged Agathocles to back off from Messina, and then later tried to broker peace between him and some other Sicilian Greek states. Neither of these attempts worked. Agathocles seized Messina, met the exiles in open battle, and defeated them too, and kept growing his empire from there. Carthage was compelled to declare war in 311 BC, when Agathocles showed overt hostility and attacked their territory. First, he marched down to Akragas on the southern coast of Sicily and tried to capture the city. His army was rebuffed by a Carthaginian fleet, and so he resorted to raiding smaller settlements in the area to sustain himself. Carthage decided that it was time to stop messing around and just finish this. They put together a diverse and well-trained army to slay the monster they had helped create. It comprised a mix of the Sacred Band, Libyans, cavalry, missile troops from Italy, and of course, a healthy number of triremes. Now get this, the war effort was interestingly enough led by a member of the Magonid clan, who I will not bother naming because I don't want to confuse y'all with a bunch of derivatively named generals. I mention it though because it illuminates an important aspect of the fall of the Magadid dynasty, that they didn't just disappear entirely, rather their monopoly on power was dismantled by the Adurim. The army landed in the south and were unlucky enough to encounter an intense storm along the way. The damaged fleet limped into port and unfortunately for the elite ranks of Carthaginian society, the ships carrying the sacred band were hit hardest. Man, those citizen soldiers really can't seem to catch a break, can they? The Carthaginian commander resorted to calling in mercenaries and levies from the other cities under Carthaginian rule to enforce his army. We also have an interesting little detail about how the Punic locals mourned the loss of the sacred band in a ceremony that involved hanging black tapestries all throughout their homes and streets. Perhaps this practice had some religious weight behind it, given that these were Punic brothers-in-arms that had just died, or maybe it was just a gesture of solidarity to their overlords. It's fun to speculate. Despite all these early hardships, the army persisted. They made their way east of Akragas to Gela, 
following the route that Himilcar Mago had taken all the way back in the Second Sicilian War. Instead of besieging the city, though, they chose to lie in wait for Agathocles nearby, and so they set up a camp on a steep hill. This detail will be important in a sec. Agathocles, who, remember, is further west than this, just north of Akragos, actually, catches wind that Carthage has just landed troops right behind him, moving towards Gela. And this is where Carthage's decision not to besiege the city, but rather just chill out at a safe distance, is a masterstroke. See, Agathocles has to come to them. That's just common sense, right? I mean, Gela was relatively undefended at this point, and Carthage could easily take it if the Syracusans didn't stop them in time. And speaking of Syracuse, guess what city is a lot closer to Gela than it is to Agathocles? That's right, if Carthage's army made it past Gela, Agathocles was kind of screwed. So he turned right around and raced down there to put a stop to the looming Punic threat. And while he was on the way, he had messengers send out a call for reinforcements from the Syracusan territories to meet at Gela and form a garrison. Agathocles wasn't just going to let the Geloans go down without a proper fight. But little did Agathocles know that Carthage had no intention of fighting the Geloans. They wanted to fight him. Thereafter, Agathocles arrived at Gela, and when he discovered that the Magadid general was just going to stay up in the hills, he knew that this was a challenge he would have to accept. Now, as much as pop culture depicts otherwise, the art of positioning is half of the art of winning a battle. And what makes this battle so damn interesting is the positions that the two sides ended up in. The Carthaginians, of course, were still on that hill, named the Economists, according to the sources. Now, down the slopes of the Economists was a valley in which a river ran through. This river was the River Hamera, the modern-day Salsu, hope I'm pronouncing that right, runs north to south and spits out into the sea right by Gela. On the other side of the Hemera River was another hill, which was the obvious destination of Agathocles to make camp. So both sides occupied two hills and were divided by a river in the middle. It doesn't get more symmetrical than that. And this relative balance of power persisted for a while, as the armies on each hill dug in further. It got to the point where both encampments had not only wooden palisades and towers, but even moats and trenches surrounding them as well. Every now and then, throughout these weeks of stalemate, foraging parties or patrols would run into each other and a skirmish would ensue. And it was one of these encounters that was the catalyst for what we know as the Battle of the Himera River. See, what happened was that a Greek raiding party had crossed the river and pushed into enemy territory, only to be intercepted by a Carthaginian patrol and beaten right back down to the banks from which they came. The Greeks fled across the river back to their hill, and Agathocles, back in his camp on the hill, noticed the Carthaginians giving chase down the economists, so he set up a trap for them on the other side of the river. When the Carthaginian patrol and the desperate soldiers they were pursuing crossed the Himera River, a horde of Greek infantry was waiting for them. This shifted the momentum of the fighting in a way that would be kind of comical if it weren't for all the fear and death involved. And even then, 
it's hard not to chuckle as I write this, but the Carthaginians ended up fleeing back across the river yet again, with the Greeks now chasing them all the way up to the other side of the valley, up the Economist Hill, and right to the front of the Carthaginian camp. It really reads like one of those scenes from a cartoon where the hero and the villain take turns chasing each other with yakety sacks in the background. By the time the whole ensemble made it up the Economist, the entirety of Agathocles' army had joined the Greek chase, formed ranks, and were crashing through the defenses with ferocious speed. So, not so yakety sacks of a moment there. There was no time for the Carthaginian commander to organize his lines. Instead, a mass of sacred band, Libyans, and Italian infantry ended up going hand-to-hand with the oncoming Greeks. The melee centered around a single trench, the last line of defense before the camp's interior, and according to Diodorus Siculus, it got desperate. Like, people fighting on heaps of corpses desperate. If something didn't change soon, Carthage's army would be exterminated in one fell swoop. Very fortunately for them, though, their general, that magnet guy, had a trick up his sleeve. Take a second and remember that a few minutes ago, we talked about the composition of this Carthaginian army, and it wasn't all just infantry. In fact, there were some very particular mercenary units that Carthage recruited for this expedition, and in a moment, it's going to be their time to shine. Let's talk about why having a diverse recruitment pool for your military can really come in handy, shall we? So, behind the frontline combat going on around the trench, the missile troops started to get their act together in the Carthaginian camp. To be specific, we're talking about Balearic Slingers. So, what exactly are Balearic Slingers? Well, the first word, Balearic, comes from the Balearic Islands, which run parallel to Andalusia, or southeastern Spain. Think islands like Ibiza and Mallorca. Now, these islands were actually part of the Carthaginian Empire, and the Punic Diaspora had made a home there for centuries before this period. You might remember in Episode 3, we name-dropped a Punic colony on the island called Ibesis, which is where we get the name Ibiza that we use today. So let's talk about that second word, though, slingers. Slingers are exactly what they sound like. Lightly armored troops that use slings to hurl stones or pellets at their targets. Now, this may seem a little silly to people that grew up in a world of drone strikes and AR-15s, but the sling is a deadly weapon in the right hands. And these Balearic slingers definitely had the right hands. They were famous for training with their slings from early childhood, and were so renowned for their accuracy that Carthage was by no means the only ancient empire that ever put them to good use. Never underestimate the ability of a small stone flying at ridiculously high speeds to put a dent in your skull. So once the Balearic slingers organized enough to start showering the Greeks with volleys, you can imagine the carnage. I mean, even with metal armor or a helmet, which a lot of Agathocles' army probably didn't even have, a literal storm of stones can still cause some serious injuries. Sure enough, the concussed Greek army began to waver, and that wavering turned into an all-out retreat. 
By then, it was too late for them to salvage the battle. The Carthaginians advanced back down the Economus, killing everyone that wasn't fast enough to get the hell out of there. So, yeah, the Battle of the Himera River, otherwise known as the Battle of Economus, was won by a bunch of guys throwing rocks. Funny the way history works sometimes, isn't it? Agathocles, in the midst of a desperate rout, wasn't able to restore order to his troops until they had gone back across the Himera River and up to their camp on the other side of the hill. But there was nothing for it. The Greeks were now outnumbered and even worse, utterly demoralized. So Agathocles ordered the camp to be burned down and sought refuge inside the walls of Gela, which were now well stocked with food and manned by the garrison he had sent ahead of his main army. At first, the Carthaginian commander opted to besiege Gela and finish the campaign right then and there. However, the strong defenses of the city dissuaded him from staying this course. Instead, he packed up the Carthaginian army and moved them all around eastern Syracuse to Leontini, to Camarina, to Catana, and offered them independence from Syracuse if they would just support him in the war against Agathocles. Now, support really just means that they wouldn't contribute troops or any other sort of aid to Agathocles' army, but just that would do wonders for Carthaginian prospects. And fortunately for Carthage, many of the city-states agreed to these terms. Agathocles, sensing that the tides were turning further every day he stayed inside Gela, broke out and made a break for Syracuse. The way he saw it, he had one last option available to him if he wanted to win. And I'm pretty sure it's not what you're thinking. So fast forward a couple weeks, and the army of Carthage has arrived outside of Syracuse. The dreaded siege begins. Agathocles is desperate, and oftentimes, desperation brings out our extremes. Okay. So here's where things start to get really interesting, because Agathocles is about to literally head into uncharted territory for a Greek statesman. Historian Dexter Hoyos describes his plan as having, quote, astonishing bravado. Diodorus Siculus calls it, quote, an undertaking that was unexpected and most reckless, end quote. I think both of those labels are selling it short. One night... Several days into the siege, an entire fleet of Syracusan ships carrying around 15,000 soldiers and Agathocles himself rushes out of the harbor and runs the Carthaginian blockade. Where are they going, you may be asking? Is it back to Gela? Is it over to Lilibium, perhaps, in the west? Is it up to Messina in the north? Nope. They're embarking on what's effectively a suicide mission to Carthage itself. There were a couple times in previous episodes about the Sicilian Wars that we referenced this lingering fear that Carthage had of an invasion of North Africa by a Greek army. In the aftermath of the First Battle of Himera, back in 480, remember, the city was terrified that Gelon of Syracuse would cement his victory by leaving Sicily at the head of a fleet. The same thought swirled around the Carthaginian consciousness at various points in Dionysius's and Timoleon's careers. But in the past, I've always kind of brushed these fears aside, portrayed them as wild overreactions. And that's because they kind of were, but not anymore. 
In a matter of days, Agathocles would be landing on Carthaginian soil. The fear had become reality. Although I'm sure when the myriad statesmen of Carthage envisioned this reality, they hadn't expected the invading army to be in such dire straits. Agathocles, after all, was not attempting this under ideal conditions. The first of his worries was Syracuse, you know, his capital city he was abandoning that was currently under siege and bereft of its former allies. Before he left, he made sure that any potential troublemakers were out of the picture by executing them en masse and scooping up all their riches and property to fund his army. He assigned his brother, a Syracusan general named Antander, to watch over the city and hopefully repel the Carthaginian forces outside the gates. Then he set off, without telling any of his soldiers where exactly they were all going. His other big problem, though, was the task of navigating through the territory of the most dominant naval power in the known world. Carthaginian fleets were constantly patrolling the waters of not just the coast of Libya, but the entire western Mediterranean. He chose the most direct, but also probably the most dangerous spot to land, Cape Bon, which is a peninsula that sticks out into the Mediterranean just south of the city of Carthage proper. Sure enough, one such Carthaginian patrol spotted Agathocles as he and his ships approached land, and they gave chase. According to the sources, it was a very close call. The Carthaginian ships were manned by expert rowers who trained rigorously from a young age. Despite the distance between them and the Greeks, they nearly caught up with them before they could beach their ships. The key word, though, is nearly. Agathocles' army made it to a beach and sprinted off their ships as fast as they could. Even when on land, however, they still couldn't escape the wrath of the Punic navy, which peppered them with stones, javelins, and other missiles, inflicting a decent amount of casualties given the circumstances. This first encounter at the beach must have really set the tone for Agathocles. This sure as hell wasn't going to be easy. And if he knew it at the time, so did his men. That's probably why the next thing Agathocles did, after marching the army safely out of missile range, that is, was to offer a great sacrifice to the goddess Demeter. And what sacrifice was this? All of his ships. <laughs> See, while that really might have been a satisfying gift to Demeter, who knows, I'm not a Greek fertility goddess, it also sent an important message to his men. This is it. You either survive and win yourself a pile of spoils, or you die far from home. There's no going back. Yikes. But the bright side for this seemingly damned Greek army was the other option, surviving long enough to bring the spoils of war back to Sicily. And believe me, there were plenty of spoils to be had. Diodorus Siculus gives these illustrious descriptions of the countryside of Cape Bon and Greater Libya, descriptions that we will delve into in future episodes. Hint, hint. Suffice it to say, the difference in prosperity to what the Sicilian Greeks, whose island had been ravaged by war for the last 200 years, were used to was astounding. The farmlands and settlements surrounding Carthage, ripe for looting themselves, were just a taste of what would be waiting them if they could breach the immaculate walls of the great city of Carthadasht. 
Agathocles trekked through Cape Bone, plundering his way north, and the local farmers sent word to their leaders in the city. When the Council of 104 discovered that a Carthaginian patrol had spotted the Greek landing and still couldn't stop it, they blew a gasket. After exiling and probably executing those they deemed responsible for the failure, they elected two of the finest politicians of their day to lead the defense. These guys were named Hanno and Bumalcar, and they despised each other. Now, the Adrim and the Council of 104 were well aware of the mutual loathing between these two, which is actually exactly why they made them co-generals. I think the general idea was that the political factions were forming around Hanno and Bomokar, like they had done with Hanno the Great and Eshmuniaton at the beginning of this episode. And if they could get the two rivals to unite under a common purpose, perhaps the stability of Carthaginian politics could be maintained for a little while longer. And besides, their conflicting worldviews might actually give the army some caution and temperance, right? Unfortunately for Carthage, the Council of 104 underestimated just how deep the enmity ran between the co-generals, and more dangerously, how much either of them actually cared about the state more than their own personal ambitions. But you'll see what I mean in a sec. The Carthaginian army had to be raised quickly, which certainly affected its composition. The sources tell us that it was mostly a citizen levy with elite units of sacred band scattered in there. There were a handful of Libyan troops, especially skirmishers, and a whole lot of chariots and cavalry. It seems like Bomokar and Hanno took whoever was on hand, which kind of makes sense because all of this is happening relatively quickly. I mean, think about it. It took about a week for Agathocles to sail over, and it's probably only been a couple days since his landing by now. Would you have an easy go of it organizing tens of thousands of troops and their supply lines in that time frame? I don't think I would. Yet the proficient duo Hanno and Bomokar got the job done and started heading south to stop Agathocles before he even got in sight of the walls. All this speed, though, meant that the force Carthage was bringing to the table was definitely not the best they had to offer. There was no time to fully train these men individually or drill them as a coherent unit. And this little caveat is going to bite the two commanders in the butt. The two armies met at a settlement called White Tunis, the exact location of which is not known to us, although we know it was certainly somewhere just south of Carthage. Hanno and Bamilcar won the game of positioning. They were situated on the slope of a shallow hill, looking down at their opponents. On one side of their lines was Hanno, commanding the sacred band, who were in like a hoplite formation with their spears and shields out. On the other end of the line was Bomokar and a bunch of citizen levies from Carthage and its hinterlands. In front of all this infantry were the Carthaginian chariots and some cavalry, with any skirmisher or missile troops to be found mixed in intermittently. Down the hill a little ways was Agathocles's knackered, disheveled, outnumbered army. All their infantry was arranged in a line at the front, with their ranged troops on the wings. The battle commenced with a cavalry charge from the Carthaginians. The chariots went clattering down the hill, 
kicking up a storm of dust as they flew and pummeled the Greek lines. And from the way I've been setting this battle up thus far, you might be inclined to think that this was just the beginning of the end, right? The Carthaginian chariots would break the puny Greek army, and then the infantry would come in and mop things up, right? Unfortunately for Carthage, Agathocles had a little more fight in him than that. His soldiers may have been fewer, but remember, these were guys who had been fighting in the Sicilian Wars their whole life. Not to mention, they were used to working in perfect sync with the commander that knew their capabilities in and out. Combat was in their blood. Discipline was in their bones. When the Carthaginian chariots charged them, they actually withstood, and not just that, they retaliated with shocking fierceness. I mean, seriously, I doubt Agathocles was even expecting them to hold out as well as they did. And neither was Hanno, apparently, because when he saw that his chariots and cavalry were getting sucked into a melee that they couldn't survive, he went in with his sacred band and tried to throw some force behind his wavering charioteers. Now, this probably would have worked out for Carthage if Bomilcar, who, remember, had control of a whole other half of the army, had swung around and hit the Greeks in the flank or something. But he did pretty much the opposite. He just waited until Hanno's charge lost its momentum and the sacred band again got sucked into the slog. Then he told his troops that Hanno had died with the sacred band and ordered them to leave the battlefield. See, Balmakar had similar ambitions to that of Hanno the Great's. He wanted to make himself an autocrat, and he knew that if he and his greatest rival emerged from a victory together, he could never cement himself at the head of a dynasty. Without a crushing defeat from Carthage, he couldn't be an acceptable alternative to utter destruction in the eyes of the Carthaginian citizens. So he chose to risk everything, including his own state, for power. When Hanno's men saw that Bomilcar's part of the army was fleeing, their resolve started to break, and it only disintegrated after Hanno actually did get killed in the fighting. The Carthaginians, no longer in formation at this point, were routed all the way up to the hill of their camp, with the Greeks picking them off the whole time. According to Diodorus Siculus, when the Greeks raided the camp, they discovered that the Carthaginians had brought hundreds of metal handcuffs and shackles with them, a sign that they had been prepared to overrun and enslave the Greeks with ease. Instead, the Battle of White Tunis in 309 BC was a miraculous victory for Agathocles. It transformed his invasion into one of the greatest existential threats Carthage ever faced. The reaction in Carthage to White Tunis was predictable. The incensed Athrim scrambled to prepare the city for siege. And despite his defeat, Balmokar was likely recalled to help, because at this point, no one really knew about his betrayal of Hanno yet. And besides, the Council of 104 couldn't just go crucifying generals as per usual in a situation like this. They needed all hands on deck. Meanwhile, Agathocles had reached Carthage, the heart of an empire that he and his countrymen had battled with for centuries. He didn't hesitate to put the city of Baal Hamon and Tinnit under siege. Finally, 
Carthage would feel the despair they had inflicted on Akragas, Himera, Salinas, Gela, Catana, Camarina, and, of course, Syracuse. What started as a foolish last stand that even Agathocles hadn't expected to work had spiraled into a full-blown catastrophe for Carthage. This catastrophe would indeed last for two more turbulent years. But we'll finish the story of those two years next time on Wonders of History.